Those are the first six verses of Matthew chapter one. And I want to make a confession this morning, and that confession is that I don't ever really read the introduction or the prologue or the preface to any book. In fact, if you're like a book lover, I don't want to offend your sensibilities, but I blow right by those and I try to get into like the meat of what I feel like the author really wanted to say and therefore didn't have to introduce. Uh, So in the same vein, if I were to read the book of Matthew, I think it's fairly common that most of us would look at Matthew chapter one and we would say names, 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 names. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. And after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what, she has, or what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. 17 verses of names, a prologue, and then you jump into the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. But Matthew includes the names for a reason. They're important. The introduction is typically important. In fact, I just recently finished a book called Endurance, and I, there were like 12 pages or 11 pages of prologue, introduction kind of stuff, and I skipped right past that as I normally would. And I got midway through the first section of this book, and I couldn't keep straight the names of the places and the names of the people that kept coming up. And so I flipped back to the introduction, and lo and behold, there were two maps that had all the places on there and a list of all the people and the job that they did on this boat that you were reading about. And I thought, ah, Should have read the introduction. I would have understood exactly what was happening. That's why Matthew gives this. The introduction matters. He's giving a list to his readers of important information so that they can understand who this Jesus is and exactly what it is that he's come to do. At Christmas, we're reminded that in Christ, we have Emmanuel, God with us. In the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1, we have this reminder that he's always been with us that God has always been present. And so the prologue is important. The introduction is important. And I want to start this morning by just talking about why there's a genealogy here at all. We're going to look at just the first six verses of Matthew chapter one. But verse one gives us a little bit of insight into why Matthew chose to include this at all. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, one of the reasons why there's a genealogy is because Matthew wants to root everything that he's about to say about Jesus in actual history. Why is there a genealogy? Well, because these names are important. This is historical fact, not human imagination. Gospel is translated literally good news, which means the account of Jesus, whether it be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is a biography, not just merely a story. And so that's why this doesn't begin with once upon a time. It begins with an account 
This is news. This is not the beginning of a fairy tale. It's the start of a biography. This is not good advice. It's good news. This is not wishful thinking. It's historical fact. The gospel is not a recommendation. It's a declaration. It's good news. And so the names are there to show. This is rooted in history. You can look these individuals up. You can find out when these kings ruled and what they did and who their siblings were and exactly what happened. In the same way, Matthew wants us to understand, you can do that with Christ. You can see when he existed, what he did. It's as historical fact as any of these individuals are. Another reason that Matthew gives us the genealogy is because he wants to underscore something for his Jewish readers. Matthew wrote his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience, and they would have had an incredible grasp on the Old Testament. In fact, they would have been very well steeped in everything that happened in the Old Testament. And so the literal translation of Genesis 1-1 is the Genesis of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew wants to call to mind for his Jewish readers that there's a new creation taking place here. And that just like at the start of Genesis, there's this prologue to everything that happened in human history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Matthew wants us to understand that the beginning is important for Jesus too. And just like nothing could have happened in all of human history were it not for creation, that there's a prologue, there's a beginning And in order to understand everything that's going to happen from this point forward in history, you've got to understand the start. And if you can't understand the start, you can't possibly understand the end. There's a new creation happening. Matthew also wants to point out for us that Jesus is the Christ. I will make a second confession this morning, and that's that for especially the early part of my time as a Christian, I thought Christ was Jesus's last name. I'm Tim Fritzen. He's Jesus Christ, first name, last name. Christ is a title. It tells you about who he is. It's like saying doctor fill in the blank. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the Jewish people. We're supposed to understand that he is a king that would rightfully ascend to the throne of the Israelite people. Jewish culture put a large emphasis on lineage, on lineage and on genealogy. And so lists of names were very important. You can find them all throughout the Old Testament. What Matthew wants us to understand about Jesus is that his lineage, his lineage makes him the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. There's a genealogy in the book of Luke. If you were to put the lists side by side, you would notice that they diverge at a couple of different places and the lists have different names. That's because Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, wants to make sure that his readers understand that this is the son of David, the Christ, the rightful heir to the throne. And so from David down to Jesus, Matthew traces who would have been the rightful heir to the throne, who would ascend to the throne. Whereas Luke, writing for a primary Gentile audience, wants his readers to understand who the actual father of each person was, the literal parent, the the uh, parental lineage lineage of Christ. And so the lists differ at different times. They go in and out of one another. But one reason is for us to understand that Jesus is the son of David, the heir of the promise that David would have a son who sat on the throne of Israel for all time. This is the last king, the final one who fulfills that. We're also supposed to see that that Jesus is the hope of the Gentiles. 
Jesus is also the son of Abraham. Just like David received a promise that he would have an heir on the throne, Abraham received a promise that he would be blessed and be a blessing to all the nations. And so there are some names tucked in to the first six verses of Matthew who are not Israelite individuals. In fact, all four of the women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ are Gentile women. For example, Rahab, she was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. The wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. She was a Hittite. In the same way that Jesus is the son of David, the heir to the throne, he's also the son of Abraham, the blessing that would extend to all nations. He's the hope of the Gentiles and the hope of the Jews. And then the last thing that the genealogy points out for us and should underscore is that God is guiding all of history. Everything that happens is happening not only just under kind of the observing eye of the Lord, but by his direct will and his direct writing. God is not like a chaperone at a high school dance who's standing back against the wall and trying to figure out when things have arrived at the point that he needs to intervene and make his presence known. He's the author of the greatest story of all time, and that story finds its culmination in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's at that moment where God decides to write himself into the story. That God is not just authoring something and he's distant and far away from it. At the birth of Christ, Jesus is supposed to show us, Jesus is God entering into the story that he's writing in order to put the final piece of punctuation on exactly what it is that he's been doing. Matthew's genealogy says God is in charge. He is with us. Christmas says now he's entered in and he's not only with us, he's among us as one of us. Those are some of the broad generalities of why it is that Matthew would start his account with a genealogy. The prologue matters. It matters immensely. It's the map that's supposed to help us understand what we're reading all the way from Bethlehem to Calvary. But you can get more specific, and a little bit of reflection on some of the names allows us to pull out some more points. And that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. This morning and next Sunday and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to spend time just working through the three sections of this genealogy. This morning, we're going to see that our life's triumphs matter because God is with us. Next week, we'll see that our life's failures are not final because God is with us. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll see that our lives are not anonymous and unseen because God is with us. If you're holding a New King James or uh, an older translation of the Bible, your version probably says instead of Abraham fathered Isaac or Abraham was the father of Isaac, yours says Abraham begat or begot Isaac. We don't use that word anymore. Tim Keller says this though, the grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. My hope is that over the next couple of weeks, that's what we see here in the genealogy of Jesus. For a Jewish reader who read these first six verses, what would have been conjured in the mind were some of the Old Testament's greatest hits. Knowing all about the stories and the history and the people of the Old Testament, a Jewish individual would have read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and they would have been reminded that Abraham received the covenant from God, and he had this incredible faith 
to leave behind everything that he knew and his family and his friends and his possessions and to go to a land that God did not even tell him ahead of time that he was headed to, that it was by his faith in God's promise that he was declared righteous or was granted righteousness. It would also call to mind the fact that here was this man whose faith enabled him to willingly potentially make a sacrifice of his son because he so trusted in the fact that God would provide the means by which that promise would be fulfilled. The name Jacob would call to mind the father of 12 sons whose sons would become the heads of the different tribes of Israel and that Jacob was this man who wrestled with God and after having wrestled with him, God changes his name to Israel because you have wrestled with God and with men and Jacob becomes the father of the Israelite people. The name Judah, that's the tribe that would give rise to David and ultimately to Jesus. Aminadab, for someone who is well steeped in the Old Testament, they would have known that Aminadab is the daughter of Aaron, or Aminadab's daughter married Aaron, Moses' brother, the first priest of Israel. Nashon was the chief of the tribe of Judah as they wandered in the desert. He was also the first one to offer a sacrifice at the tabernacle in the wilderness. Rahab saved the spies of Israel at Jericho and opened the door for the taking of the promised land. Boaz is the Old Testament's great kinsman redeemer when he marries Ruth, who demonstrated this amazing faith where despite not being an Israelite, she says to her mother-in-law, I will go wherever you go and your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Jesse allowed Samuel to sift through all of his sons while looking to anoint the king who would follow Saul and David as Israelite's greatest king, the one who slayed Goliath and subdued the Philistines. Those names are a resume for Jesus. There's a scene in Cool Runnings where these four Jamaican men are getting placed into a bobsled for the very first time. They've never even seen it. And their coach puts two of them in the middle and then he looks at a third and his name is Sanka, and he says, Sanka, you're the brake man. And Sanka says, no, I'm the driver. He says, no, you're the brake man. He says, do you understand who I am? I am Sanka, the, the greatest push cart driver in all of Jamaica. And the coach looks back at him, and he says, let me tell you who I am. I'm coming from two gold medals, nine world records in both the two-man and the four-man events. I'm coming from over a decade of intense competition at the height of this sport. And there's this silence that kind of hangs in the air. And Sanka looks at him and he says, that's a heck of a place to be coming from. That's what these first six verses, the first 14 generations of Jesus's genealogy would have done in the mind of an Israelite person. This is a heck of a place to be coming from. These ancestors are so great. They're some of the pillars of the Old Testament. But it's not all roses exactly, if you really reflect on who these individuals are. Abraham tried to take the covenant into his own hands and had a child with the servant of his wife. Jacob lied to his aging and blind father in order to steal the birthright from his older brother. Rahab was a prostitute who told an outright lie in order to hide the spies who were in her home. David had an affair with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed in order to cover it up. When you really think about the people in this first section of Matthew's genealogy, you realize that though they had these incredible moments of faith, they were also marked by the exact same sin that exists within all of us. At our very best, our greatest moments, whether they be of moral triumph or of worldly success, we're told that they are like filthy rags before a holy and eternal God. At our worst which we'll talk a little bit more about next week, our lives would appear to be more of a hindrance to God's will rather than a conduit through which it flows. 
in reality, each and every one of us, the names in this genealogy, but also every person sitting in this room, is this mixed bag of good and bad. But the reality is that God is over all of that, present with us, guiding history toward his desired end. The Old Testament's triumphs have meaning because God is with us. The power and the wonder of the lives of the Old Testament figures and heroes are powerful and wonderful, not because of who these individuals are, but because the ultimate power and the ultimate wonder in all of the universe is present with them and guiding them. He's the one who's creating significance and meaning in the events of the Old Testament. And were he not present and working, then the events of these Israelite people would barely even be footnotes in history. They would be no different than the events of nations like Egypt or Rome or Greece or China. In fact, this small group of people wouldn't even really have gotten mention in the large history of humanity. Instead, they're one of the greatest people that have ever walked the face of the planet. And it's because God's present and he's working with them and he's guiding history to this moment of Jesus's birth and beyond that birth to the moment of Christ on the cross and beyond the cross to the moment when Christ will come back triumphantly. Matthew wants us to see that not only do these names inform us of the history of those people, but they also form the necessary backbone of the greatest event in all of the universe, the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's think about the Christmas story specifically. The only reason that that night in Bethlehem matters any more than any other birth on any other night in any other country at any other time is because of the significance of Christ, of Emmanuel, God with us. Not only God sovereign over the universe with us in that moment, but the birth of the Son into the world to be among us. The author is writing himself into the story. Jesus comes as a baby to be with us visibly and tangibly. God has been with us as a sovereign king over all of the universe, and now he's with us right here in person as one of us. And so there's this amazing paradox that plays out at the birth of Jesus Christ. He is simultaneously this infant in a manger, but also the infinite son of God. He is at the same time being held by his mother while he's upholding the entirety of the universe. Before he can speak a single word, he is the eternal word by which everything was created. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. By him, everything was created. Both of those are happening at the same time at the birth of Jesus Christ. He's laid in this rickety wooden feeding trough and yet he's controlling all of the events that would lead him to an old rugged cross. As his wiggly little baby body is placed on hay in a manger, he's also looking forward to the day where his body would be placed in a tomb and would emerge on the third day. He comes into the world as a humble baby born of Mary's womb while looking forward to the day he'll return as a conquering king on the back of a white horse. God with us. Didn't just start there at the manger in Bethlehem. He's been with us all the time from beginning to end. That's what makes moments of triumph matter. It's what makes moments of failure not final. It's what makes the first Christmas ring of its great eternally glorious significance. And the fact that God has been with us is not only true historically, it's also true for you personally. Your moments of triumph have meaning because God is with us. If God were not authoring the story of all things, including the story of your life, then the moments of our lives, be they wonderful, neutral, or awful, 
would ultimately be meaningless. They would pass away with you and they would be gone and forgotten. But that's not the case. In your life, just as in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Perez and Hezram and Aram and Amminadab and Nashon and Solomon and Boaz and Abed and Jesse and David and all the rest, God is with you. He is with us. And he's writing a different part of his eternal story right now than he was in the life of Amminadab or than he was in the life of Isaac, but he's still being diligent and intentional in authoring now as he was then. And that means that the moments of your life aren't merely passing away without meaning or purpose. In fact, it means the exact opposite. That like the great heroes and figures of the Old Testament, your life's moments have meaning because God is with us. So what are we supposed to do with that? Matthew gives us a genealogy. He wants to underscore all of these realities. And so how do we respond to that? I want to give a few encouragements and I want to do it from how Mary responds to finding out about this baby that she's about to have. So if you've got your Bible, flip forward a couple books to Luke chapter one. I'm going to begin in verse 26 and I'm going to work my way down to 38. And as we go, I'm just going to point a few things out. I hope they're encouraging for you this morning. Luke 1.26 says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord of God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The first encouragement I want to offer this morning in light of God being with us is this. Search for the truth. When the angel comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to give birth to Jesus, notice her first, our first two recorded responses. It starts in verse 28. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was deeply troubled. That is the response of everyone in the Bible who sees an angel. It is a troubling, terrifying experience. In that moment, even though God is not standing in front of them directly, they have an acute awareness of their brokenness before an infinite and a holy God because of the presence of this angel. And Mary is deeply troubled. And then, in verse 34, she asks a question. How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Mary looks at Gabriel, the angel, and she essentially says, what are you talking about, Willis? I understand how babies happen, and I understand that the necessary components have not taken place up to this point. How can I have a child? How can this be? Explain it to me. That word asked, Mary asked, is actually the word for to make an audit. Mary wants to know all the facts. Give me the figures. Show me the books. Let me reconcile how this is possible. Display to me the truth of this coming event. That's what Mary says. And the angel can handle that question. God can handle those questions. They come not from a doubting heart, but from a curious heart. 
So Mary asks, and the angel provides an answer. She wants to be thorough. She wants to be rational. She wants to be intentional. She wants to understand. Christmas isn't just a time to celebrate with family and enjoy some time away from the office, though those are wonderful side benefits. First and foremost, Christmas is an opportunity to be saved. It's an opportunity to understand Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's a time for us to consider the wonder of God being with us. Why was it needed? What did he do? What does it mean? It's a time for us to search for an answer to the question, how do I be with him for all of eternity? Responding to the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ is an act that requires our whole person, and that includes our intellect. So if you've never done so, Christmas is the perfect time to ask those questions. What is this whole incarnation about? Why should it matter to me? What does it demand of me? I promise you that God can handle those questions. I promise you that the Bible offers answers to those questions. And I promise you that there's no more important question that you could possibly be asking. What does all of this mean? Search for the truth. Look for the answers. Don't be afraid to ask. What else do we do? Well, let's continue to read. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. We search for truth. And then we submit to the Lord. Mary's third response in this passage is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. This submission can go in two different directions. If you're someone who's not ever received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, then submission looks like making a first-time declaration that I am the Lord's servant, that he is the king, that he is the Lord, he is the master Jump back up to verse 28. In verse 28, when Gabriel arrives, he says this. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. And then look at the next words. The Lord is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. Her submission to that, I am the Lord's servant, comes from the fact that God is present with her. She receives this promise of who this child is going to be, and she responds in submission despite not having seen any of those things come to fruition. The great grace of the time when you were born is that we respond in submission having seen what God has done for us. The primary motivation for submitting to the Lord is the response to what God has done on your behalf, not what he could do for you, what he has done for you. If you've not ever made that declaration, I want to encourage you that this Advent season, the expectation of Christ's birth before Christmas, this is a wonderful time to ask those kinds of questions. It's a wonderful time to step into that kind of submission. The world over is thinking about the birth of Jesus Christ. If you've not ever accepted him as Savior and Lord, this is a wonderful time to ask questions and to submit. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then submission isn't about salvation. It's about sanctification. It means that we submit to the will and the work of God in, around, and through us. We recognize his presence and submit to it. 
in response to the grace of God being with us, we joyfully make daily acts of submission to him. That means we have to reject the thought of treating Jesus like a consultant and treat him as the Lord. We have to stop treating him as an advisor and start treating him as the author. Let me put this to you in the form of two questions. Are you living in obedience to the things that the Bible clearly says? Are you treating him as Lord? Supreme ruler of all of the universe author of all of human history? Or are you treating him as an advisor? When you read something in scripture, do you think to yourself, hmm, God, good suggestion? Or do you think to yourself, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. Another question, are you trusting the Lord in whatever he has sent into your life? The circumstances, the situations. Think about Romeo and Juliet. They didn't stop William Shakespeare midway through and say, hey, we have a suggestion. We'd like to make a change to the story, please, Bill, if you would alter that for me. He's the author. He dictates what happens in every scene, and the same is true for us. God is the sovereign author of all of human history. And if we're going to live in submission to him, then we submit to what it is that he would bring into our life. Are you living in obedience to the things that the Bible clearly says? And are you trusting in the Lord no matter what he sends into your life? I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Submit to him. And then last, jump over to verse 46. Mary breaks out in song. Mary said, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generations on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped the servant Israel, his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Mary sings of his presence. Mary's greatest moment is immortalized for us in Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two and at the beginning of Matthew. And yet in response to all of that, Mary says, he has done great things for me. His name is holy. His mercies from generation to generation. He has done a mighty deed. He has toppled the mighty. He has satisfied the hungry. He has helped his servant. Mary recognizes who is in control and she sings the praises of the Lord. Mary understands that history is going to remember her not because she gave birth, not because she was so eminently worthy. Mary understands that generation to generation is going to remember her because the Lord has done great things for her. God is with her and through her, Emmanuel came to us. God with us. Our life's triumphs have meaning because God is with us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you over the next two weeks. The end of a year always offers us wonderful opportunities to spend time in reflection about what has happened over the course of the last year. I want to encourage you to include intentionally in that reflecting all of the wonderful things that the Lord has done for you and to sing of his greatness, to sing of his presence, to sing of his glory, 
He is the author. He is Emmanuel from beginning to end, from creation and eternally before it, to the birth of Jesus, to his death on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb, his ascension into heaven, and his return on the back of a white horse, and then eternally beyond that, God with us from beginning to end. And all glory is due to him. Amen? Amen. We've been closing our services uh, by singing a song together. And so I want to I do that as well. So if you will stand up. Every year uh, around Christmas, we sing, we sing the same song a few times. It's called All Glory Be to Christ. As we sing praises of his presence to him, we're celebrating the fact that Christ is Lord over all things, that all of the moments of our lives have been orchestrated by a God who is good and who is loving and who above all is present with us. Let's sing this together.